You're listening to a teaching from Sundown Church. We hope you encounter God through our podcast and experience freedom in your life. Uh, Last week, we started a topic that I know is going to take three if not four weeks, because it's really covering several different things. Last week, we talked about uh, the fact that when somebody comes into my office and you encounter the same thing, when someone comes in, I'm not sure when they walk in whether they need to be saved, whether they need deliverance, whether they need repentance, or whether they just need healing. And because generally, their lives look much the same, depending on what's going on the life looks, looks very much the same. So the Holy Spirit has to help us to be the discerner of that difference. So last week we talked about salvation and how we approach that so that we can know for ourselves and, and help others know, that, again, that they know that they know that they know that they know. How do we approach salvation with certainty so that we're, we're moving them from a question to a matter of absolute and it's not difficult to do. And if you, if you get a chance, you can go back and listen to last Wednesday night's message on salvation. Uh, I think it will help. I don't know if Parker actually took a picture yet of that that he could post on there so that somebody listening to the sermon could look at the flip chart and see the drawing, and we'll probably I'll get him to do this, the same thing tonight. Tonight we're talking about deliverance. Deliverance, this, this teaching on deliverance and the ministry of deliverance in this church is, is, is a bit unique, and I think most of you know this, but this isn't something that we went to a class and learned. This isn't someone's program. This isn't someone's, uh, you know, system or, or program that they've developed, and we went and kind of looked at and, and took on. Every piece of this is Holy Spirit-given. Every piece of this is Holy Spirit taught. It started, this, this ministry started when I was dealing with a lot of college students. And I can, I can almost put on a timeline how this ministry uh, of deliverance has grown. And again, it's, it's, it's really unique. Again, not because of me, but because of the Holy Spirit being the one who, who's actually given it. It started with the scripture that I'm going to read in Genesis chapter 32. It's the story of Jacob, and it's the story of identity change from one identity to the other. And I don't think any of us, you've heard me ask this question before, and the the question is simply this. You know, I ask it two ways. You know, when does a liar... When does the liar become a liar? And again, the great tendency is to say, you know, over here, well, they became a liar, you know, when they, when they told a lie. And, and again, it makes perfectly good sense, except it's got a, there's an inherent problem in it. Because only whom will tell a lie? A liar. So the truth is, they had to become something which is identity 
They had to become something before they would do something, which is action. So a thief doesn't become a thief when they steal because only a thief would steal. Adam and Eve didn't sin because they, you know, because they were tempted. They sinned because they had become sinners and the actions followed. So it's not difficult in this ministry of deliverance to recognize that the uniqueness of it is that we deal with identity because identity is producing the action. The identity is producing the brokenness. The identity is producing the questions. The identity is producing the habits. The identity is producing the addictions. The identity is producing the struggles. If we don't get this back to identity, then we will never find the root in, in which we're supposed to be looking. Now, you heard me Sunday morning talking about this under this topic of will you be present in your own future? And one of the points that I made is that we have to work diligently, and we do, recognizing that when Jesus said, in, in uh, Luke 17, 32, remember Lot's wife, what he was asking us to remember was that there was, there was a serious consequence for looking back. Well, in deliverance, we have to look back. Now, we only look back momentarily. We don't live back there, but in deliverance, we have to look back. We have to find a root. We have to find a source from which the difficulty that they're facing or the struggle that they're in, we have to find the root because this is the difference between somebody going to rehab where they're trying, somebody's trying to help them improve their actions, not really ever getting, some of it successful, I'm not gonna discount it, but, but rarely do they get to the root. They're dealing with actions, behaviors, trying to improve those. Well, if you, if you believe as I do that those actions are simply the fruit of an identity, then there's nothing going to change dynamically until you get to the identity questions. And again, I deal with this all the time. This is a constant within my office of people coming in, as I shared on Sunday night, coming in with a, with a life that's broken, never realizing that the point of the brokenness started so many years before, so, so long ago, never connecting those broken moments with the current struggle. Yes, ma'am. Sure. When I make the decision that I'm going to steal, I become a thief. It's not, it's not, it's, it's the choice I'm making within me. It's decisions that I'm making. I, and, and so I become a thief when I, when I make that decision, when that action becomes my choice. I am, a, I am a thief before I ever do it or I would have never done it. But it's not some, I can, I can put it on Satan and, and, as the origin of all this, I can say this, but in reality, when I make a choice 
to steal something. I put that plan in motion. I have those thoughts and I'm rehearsing what I'm going to do. I have become a thief. It's a mental and an emotional. It's a soulish decision. Yeah, it, it, it is absolutely the result of something that's happening within myself to take an action that, that but again, I have, I, have, I have to become that. So nobody made me. It's a choice I made myself. Mm-mm. Now, I can say environment would have affected it, but it's the, it's the choice that the individual makes. It's what it's the choice that Eve made. The temptation was, was there. That was very real. But, but when she began to entertain and really think of the action that she would take, she became a sinner before she took it. Thinking about it, making the decisions. No, if she if she had if she hadn't eaten the fruit, she would not have she wouldn't have been a sinner. If she decided not to, we're gonna we're gonna all live that live that life. But it's that decision that prompts that action says I was I was already that before I did it. But the, the main point of that is to, is to is to just really stress that identity, and and the God who formed us did this everywhere. This isn't unique to humanity. You know, again, I use the illustration all the time because it's so easy to do. When, when I look at fruit in a, or vegetables in a, in a supermarket, and I'm, I'm looking at an apple, I know where it came from. It came from an apple tree because the identity of that tree determined what the fruit was going to be. I mean, it's everywhere. We don't get this inconsistency in even the things that God did. I don't look out at a cotton plant, go out there with a basket hoping I can pick peas. I know what it's going to produce by the very plant that it is. The identity determines the fruit. So again, this is why it's so important to know that because when we finally understand that, we can understand what Satan's great trick is. Again, we have thought for a long time that what Satan's really about is trying to get me to act inappropriately to get me to sin, to get me to act, you know, against God. And it's like, I'm not going to say that, it, that, that he's not doing it. But I will tell you the great trick of Satan, the deadly one, is to get me to believe something about myself that's untrue, to change my identity. Why is it so deadly? Because it changes the fruit. So for, for years for me thinking that, you know, that I am poor produced a, a fruit that went along with it. So he had to restore. He had to come in, in all the ways that he did that I've shared with you many times to tell me that my identity was not I am poor. My, my identity is I am wisdom. Not because I chose that, because that's what he spoke over me. So that the very natural fruit is wisdom. The very natural fruit is this truth that, I, that I'm able to share, not because of me, but because of him. So Satan's great trick is to change our identity. Then he can leave us alone. He can get us to be into some very strange behaviors. And we watch this like, we, you know, 
this situation. Why would, why would a woman stay with a man who verbally, mentally, and even to across that line physically abused her? When, I, when we, any of us look at that and say, why? What in the world could cause someone to stay in that and even in the extreme cases, to justify it or to defend him. We look at those behaviors and those actions and that attitude and huge question marks are coming up. Why would they do that? But when we begin to let this story unfold, when we quit judging that action, saying, okay, we can identify it. This is what's going on. I can, I can assure you we can back into a story a brokenness in a, in, in a childhood, brokenness in early relationships that would that when we see the dots finally connect, we will say, as, as odd as it looks, I can now understand it. So let's talk about deliverance for just a second. If you would go with me to Genesis chapter 22. We're going to start there in that, in that passage. Now, here, here's, here's the story that we're coming up to. Jacob has stolen a birthright and a blessing from Esau. <coughs> Lied to his father, helped by his mother, did some despicable things to the point where his mother said, you know, you, you're not safe around here anymore. You need to go live with my brother Laban. So he... So Jacob goes away for 20 years, having in his head, in his ringing in his ears, Esau's last words saying, the next time I see you, I'm going to kill you. So he was very willing to make this journey uh, and stay away for 20 years. Now we know while he's there, that there are issues between he and Laban, his uncle. Some deceit, deception, all kinds of things that were going on in those 20 years. But God finally tells him, I want you to go home. I want you to go back. So we pick up this story in that journey. He's almost home. He has organized his family so that if Esau comes out with his 400 men and attacks, the other half of his family can run for their lives and maybe say, because he does not know how Esau's going to receive him. He doesn't know that Esau has forgiven him, that this, this, it, for Esau, it's just behind him. He, but Jacob doesn't know that. He still has these words fixed in his head that I'm going to kill you. 32. Genesis 32. So let me begin. Uh, I'll just begin in verse 1. And Jacob went on his way, and the angel of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's host. And he called the name of the place Mahanam. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, unto the land of Seir, the country of Edom. And he commanded them, saying, thus shall you speak unto my Lord Esau. Thy servant Jacob saith thus, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed there until now. And I have oxen and asses, flocks and men servants and women servants. And I've sent to tell my Lord that I may find grace in thy sight. And the messenger returned to Jacob saying, 
we came to thy brother Esau, and also he comes to meet thee, and four hundred men with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed, and he divided the people that was with him and the flocks and the herds and the camels into two bands, and said, If Esau comes to the one company and smites it, then the other company which is left shall escape. Verse 9. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, the Lord who has said unto me, Return unto thy kindred and to, to, the, to and thy country and to thy kindred, and I will deal well with thee. And I want to stop right there. Because Jacob is now turning to God, saying, God, you're the one who told me to go home. You're the one who has given me this instruction to return to my country, to turn, return to my people. And this promise that God's made him, it says, and I will deal well with thee. Now, what would have been the outcome if Jacob had returned to Esau as Jacob? The same liar, the same thief, the same crook, the same deceiver, the same cheat, what would have happened? Even with Esau having forgiven him, what would have eventually happened very quickly upon Jacob's return? Well, old Jacob would have showed up. He would have done something else. So when God says, I'm going, I want to deal well not with your kindred, not with Esau, not with your wives, not with your children, not with any of, your, uh, any of your, the things that, that belong to you. God's promise says, and I will deal well with you. So we drop down in the story to the bottom of chapter 32. And again, we know the story very well. You know, Jacob's still trying to manage his wives and all the people that are going with him. Uh, and let's, let's go to, to verse 22. This is the night, really, before he's going to meet Esau. And he rose up that night and took his two wives and his two women servants and his 11 sons and passed over the ford Jabbok. And he took them and sent them over the brook and sent over that he, ha- and sent over that he had. And Jacob was left alone, and there wrestled a man with him until the breaking of day. Now, we know from other stories and other situations that this man was not a man. It was not an angel. This was God. We can, we can know that firmly. Uh, verse 25. And when he saw that he prevailed not against him, he touched the hollow of his thigh, and the hollow of Jacob's thigh was out of joint as he wrestled with him. And he said, this being God, saying, let me go for the day breaks. And he says, I will not let thee go except thou bless me. And he said unto him, what is thy name? And he said, Jacob. And he said, thy name shall be called no more Jacob, but Israel. For as a prince thou hast power with God uh, and with men and has prevailed. So what we're watching here is the moment when an old identity is exchanged for a new one. This is the heart of this ministry. The the ability to recognize that for many, because of Satan, there is an old identity at play. There is an identity that has been formed by some hurt, some moment, some trauma, 
some incident or some repetitive statements, but there is an identity that has been formed not because of parents, not because of friends. They could only create the opportunity, but it's Satan who whispers. It's Satan who says, well, it's because you're weak. It's because you're not wanted. It's because you're not good enough. It's because of, of one thing or another. It's because you're alone. And he, and he will whisper those things to you. Dealing with one right now. It's because you're responsible. I mean, he will whisper anything that is logical or reasonable in the moment that will get you to believe that about yourself and the identities change, so now we're living life under a false identity. Uh, many of you in here have been through that, sitting back there with me to discover that there are those false identities that we have carried. Tony, what was yours? That what was your false identity? We talked about it the other day. That you were what? Alone. Alone. Yeah. Steve, what was yours? Not enough. enough. You know, had one delivered not too long ago, not good enough. You know, it's just the stuff that Satan would whisper in those moments when we're alone or we've been hurt or we've been abused or whatever the situation is, he just whispers in the moment to, to plant something in us that is dynamically there now. Well, again, this this passage is the foundation for how we bring someone by, by the Holy Spirit revelation. This is how we bring someone to deliverance because what we're asking God to do is exactly what God did here to say to, say to someone, your, your name is no longer I am alone and actually take that identity away. Now, I'm going to show you just half of what we do, and I'll do it very quickly, but half of what we do in deliverance. If you want to share something, if you've, if you've been in my office and you want to share something about your story, you're, you're more than welcome to do it. I, I start in this conversation by drawing a box down in the bottom right-hand corner, and in this box, I write the words action, attitude, and behavior. And I ask people to recognize that the three things, I'm sorry, the one thing those three things have in common is that our action, our attitude, and our behavior are all things that other people can observe. They, they can see us act. They see us behave. They can generally sense our attitude And because these are observable things, two things occur out of that. The first is this is what causes people to react. So much of our life is is found in the drama between these two points, action and reaction. But the other thing that, the unfortunate thing that happens because our lives can be observed is that labels are very quickly assigned you can drive by somebody's house and the yard's not kept or, or there's a mess here or a mess there or whatever, and it's very quick. We're very quick to make some assessment about the people who live there. 
and again, you've heard me ask this, but what is the likelihood that you and I, observing somebody else's life, can make a correct assessment? What's the likelihood that we will be correct in our assessment? Well, we know the odds, and they're this. We have a 0% chance of getting it right. Why? Because all of this information that we're taking in about somebody else is being filtered through our own, our own stories, by our, our own biases, our own prejudices, our own histories. So everybody's information is coming through hundreds of filters for us to try to draw a conclusion about their actions or their attitudes or behaviors and, and, and a chance of us getting it right, zero. So we make, we make this statement, and I know it's a bold one, but I found it to be true that in all of this stuff, we have to, we have to begin by saying in it, I will find no truth. So all of our decisions, we have to say right up front, if you're going to minister to someone in, in manners of deliverance, we have to turn off all judgment because our judgments are going to be absolutely incorrect. And we will not be effective in this if we start by trying to figure this out trying to figure out why somebody's acting the way they are. Why are they drinking? Why are they doing this? Why are they, why are they looking at this? Why are they, you know, with, with other men, other women? We look at these things, and no matter how extreme it is, the behavior, we have to turn off all judgment. If we're going to help them, and they want our help. Now, if they don't want our help, it's, you know, we're not going to go very far anyway. But if they want our help, they want what the Holy Spirit can do in this story, then we have to make a conscious choice to turn off all judgment. It will not serve us well. Matter of fact, it will cripple us if we start trying to make any type of judgment of what's really going on. So where do we go from there then? Well, I draw a second box in the middle. On it, I simply write the word control and then... Up in the top left-hand corner, I, I draw a third box, and this box just has a question mark in it. I, I, use, the, I use the illustration routinely that if you're flying in an airplane and everything is good and smooth, your people on the plane are napping or reading magazines or working on their computer, whatever they happen to be doing, everything is just going fine, but with no announcement, no warnings, no flight attendants saying, you know, been enough of these. You might want to put your drinks on the floor because if you don't, you're probably going to be wearing it. You know you're in for trouble. But so often what will happen is with everything perfectly normal, the plane will hit an air pocket and drop and something happens very consistently on the plane. Unless you're a very, very seasoned traveler and, and even most of those, most people on there are going to gasp or scream and they're going to grab hold of something. Now, what we recognize is these actions, these behaviors that are being put on display happen 
because something up here shook. The actions were a, a, a direct result of feeling secure one moment, something shook, and immediately this happened. Now, when, when people get off the plane, they're probably going to describe it in terms of, man, everybody started screaming, everybody grabbed hold of something. But what the, where the real story is going to be, uh, why did everybody do that? Well, the plane hit an air pocket, and, we, and it shook. It was alarming. What, what happened in this question mark is that something in our life, especially as children, something shook. There was a moment. There was a situation. There was humiliation. There was hurt. And out of that, just like what happened here, why would, what were people trying to do when they were grabbing hold? They were trying to regain control. So, so what we recognize, we have to recognize, is that when something in, in our life shook, as small children, elementary age children, middle school children, high school students, even in marriage, when something shakes like that, again, no one told those people on that airplane, okay, try, grab hold of something. Why did they do it? It was a natural result of the shaking. So when something shakes us mentally and emotionally, when there is some moment of trauma, we shouldn't be surprised that the, that the natural outcome would be that we would put controls in place. And we shouldn't be surprised then that the controls create those actions. It's exactly what happened up here. When something has happened in our childhood and we feel rejected, someone chose someone over us. I, I've, got, I've got several stories I could tell here, but I, that this is being recorded. I want to be careful and try to think of an illustration that's not coming from a real one. But, you, you know, you, you can imagine that even two children in a home and in, in, a, in a divorce situation, which we see happen so often, where does, it, where does it leave these kids? It often leaves them with big questions. It's, it's a traumatic moment as they see a father or they see a mother, they see them leave. And it, it's, it's, it would not at all be surprising if, if Satan said, well, because they don't want you. So you suddenly have this false identity of I am unwanted. And, and, and so it, it wouldn't be strange at all if, if I was rejected up here for acceptance to become the control and suddenly we understand how this woman could stay with a man who was verbally abusing her. Because acceptance, again, this isn't everybody's story, but acceptance there 
would have been paramount for her because, because if she doesn't stay, what is she going to have to experience again? Rejection. And everything in her has now been rewired. Again, if I, if I go over to that corner and I turn off that light switch, we expect lights to go off in here. It would be very odd if I walked over and flipped that light off and the lights went off in my office. We would know that something was wired incorrectly. When we experience this kind of hurt, this kind of trauma, the wiring gets changed. The things that we would say would typically happen if somebody is, a, is, is going to be spoken to and abused, what would be the normal outcome? Get out. Fight back. Do something. So why this odd behavior? It's because the wiring has been changed. That acceptance becomes much more vital than the abuse. Again, it makes no sense as to an observer standing up. So if I start, if I, if I hear this and somebody's saying, well, I want, to, I want to tell you, get out. But I will tell you what will happen. If I were to convince her to leave him, what kind of relationship is she going to be in next? Same kind. Because we're not dealing with the root that says we've got to deal with your rejection back there to change the control so these down here actually change. So in deliverance, we recognize that if, I'm, if, if anything powerful is going to be done is that we recognize that we find truth up here in this top left-hand box. If, I want, if, if, if we're going to get to a root of something, if we're going to get to the real underlying bottom line truth, we're going to find it in the origin of where that first shaking took place. Because again, as, as, as difficult as this is, I mean, to, I mean, we can all recognize that, that this would happen, that's, that a hurt back here would cause us to put controls in place, not even thinking it out loud, but simply saying, I don't want that, I don't want to ever feel that again. So if I don't want to feel that again, I'm going to build a wall. So that, and that's a control. When we get people, you know, that are, that are very quiet and, and it's like, well, they're shy. But what did we just do? We just put a label on somebody because they don't talk very much and say, well, they're just shy. I would almost bet they're not. My suspicion is if they're not talking very much, it's because they put a control in place because they found out that it was more secure. It was safer to be quiet than to talk. It can be. Again, if, if, if we, especially if we watch this behavior and they're just getting run over and they, and they just, they won't stand up for themselves at all. They just, and they just get run over. Well, that, that would be the evidence that something happened up here. Now, again, the reason I qualified a little bit is because Dale taught us and we, many of us have been taught this in many places is that when we look at the four temperaments, which is very natural to us, then some people are phlegmatic and they're just lovers of peace. They're going to be less conflict uh, willing, more conflict averse than somebody else. So that's, there are natural differences as well. But when you see this 
in an extreme. When you, when you see somebody that's like, it's just peace at any cost, that's, that's more of a, I'm watching a behavior down here or an action that is, that is beyond that. I would just almost guarantee that that, that type of a, of a behavior is telling that I will comply because they could have very likely been beaten up here. That it's just, you know, if I don't want, if I don't want to be abused, then I've got to comply. And, and, and it looks down here like I, you can just run over me. So there are natural things and the differences in who we, who we are, especially in the temperaments. But when we get it where it's like somebody on the outside looking at that saying, that, that is not healthy. That, pe- that person's sleeping way too much. That person's drinking way too much. That person is, is way too quiet. That person is, is working way too hard to please others, is giving way too much, is, is just, you know. So when, when, when we get into these categories of too much, too little, and it, it, these questions begin to go off, and all it should make us do, I, I have done this so long, when I hear somebody describing the behaviors of a friend, the behaviors of a sister, the behaviors of a brother, even of themselves, my mind shoots right up this to right here. I don't spend two seconds down in this box anymore. I want to know what happened to him. I want to know up here. Because this is where I'll find truth. This is where I'll find the real difference makers. Because again, it's difficult and as tragic as this is, this isn't where the real tragedy occurs. The real tragedy occurs when in this moment of hurt, when in this moment we're vulnerable, when our hearts have been broken, when when we're when we're we're having a hard time mentally and emotionally keeping things together because someone hurt us, somebody said something. It may not even been terribly large. It's just a, a comment that Satan could use because he will take that moment of trauma and he will say, like, like he said to me in a humiliating moment, Randy, it's because... And notice these words, it's because you are, and what kind of verb is that? That's a being verb. He's speaking of being, not action. He's not saying you did something wrong. He's not accusing you. He's saying it's because you are, because he wants to fill in this blank and give you an identity that will produce another kind of fruit. So he said, it's because you are poor. Now, Satan knows what, we have, what we're struggling with. Satan knows that this is about identity. Satan knows that God is about identity. Again, we don't, we don't have to be surprised by this because even as he's talking to Moses and Moses saying, you're, 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 you're telling me to go tell these people that you're supposed to follow me? And he asked this question, who do you say, who do I say told me this? What was, what was God's answer? You tell them, 
I am that I am. Now, the I am, is, that, is, is he describing his action? No, because, again, what kind of verb is am? It's a being verb. He's saying, I am being. Not I do, not I love, not I go, not I send. He's saying, I am. When Jesus in the garden and the, and the soldiers have come to seek him, and, and he says, whom do you seek? And the Roman soldier said, Jesus of Nazareth. And what was Jesus' response? I am. And what happened to the soldiers? Everyone fell to the ground in the presence of I am. So we're not confused that God understands about himself that it's about the being. Well, what does he call us? Human beings. Satan's not confused. If, it, if, if at some moment of trauma, some moment of hurt, some moment of humiliation, when somebody has said something to us, done something to us, when that has occurred, Satan will step in and say, Randy, it's because you are poor. And suddenly he knows that the true identity that God gave me long before I was born when he first thought of me, you know, wouldn't it make sense? I, you know, let's, just, let's just say a million years ago, God thought of me. Wouldn't it make a little bit of sense for him to give me an identity when he first thought of me instead of some sequential number and say, oh, that's number, that's number you know, 17,322. No, he gave me a name. God, God has an identity for me. It's, it's tied to everything else that happens in my life. He has an identity for me. I mean, we, again, we just read the scripture. He asked Jacob, what is your name? Jacob said, I'm, my name is Jacob. I'm a liar. I'm a trickster. I'm a deceiver. I'm a thief. And God says, no more. From this point on, your name will be Israel, for you are a prince with God and you have prevailed. You see, why is it necessary to go down this path? Because when Satan whispers, the true identity is gone, the false identity is now in its place. Because God had an expectation, a design, and a plan, and I wish we would teach this to children instead of trying to just teach them to behave, which is the elementary things the Bible says, to teach them those and at the same time Begin to tell our children, this is who God says you are. Speak to them in terms of being, not just in the fact that you've done something good, but to, to address them in terms of being because that identity from God was designed to produce a particular fruit. I do too. Oh yeah, the words that are spoken over these kids. I wish we would have known it. Uh, it, because it is so, it is so powerful to watch parents speak this over children early for them to begin. Because now, when somebody comes up to them and says, "You, you know, you're you're something," it's like, "No, it's they already know. No, I'm not. I know who I am." It gives them the strongest defense against a false identity that somebody else could possibly whisper 
when, again, when they came to Jesus and called him the prince of devils, doesn't say he struggled with it. Why? Because what does his father call him? Prince of peace. And he knew it. The best defense against that type of an accusation is to know who we are. So when our children know it, but he did it because there's a particular fruit that we're supposed to produce. What happens when the identity gets changed? If identity produces fruit, get a false identity, what are you going to get? You're going to get a false fruit. So wasn't it just very handy, very considerate of Satan to, to then, after he spoke this, is it, Randy, it's because you're poor, to, to even tell me what my fruit would be? Because the lie that came with it was, but if, but if you can make enough money, you can erase that lie. So I had a false identity, which was poor, and I had a false fruit, which was money. And I watch this every day as it unfolds in my office. Unusual story after unusual story. Some that you just sit and shake your head like, Holy Spirit, you are amazing to reveal this because I would have never seen this one coming. I would have never imagined hurt out of that. When, but when you see these behaviors, it's like somebody comes in, they're kind of describing their normal life. It's like, there's nothing normal about this. You know, you're, you're staying faithful, you're staying committed to something that is absolutely destroying you. Something is wrong. And they're always a little bit shocked when I tell them that, you know, that's not normal. And so we begin to, because they're, they're going to tell me in terms of this, if I, if I don't use this as judgment, I can simply use it as a clue. Because I'll listen to these and it will begin to tell me this story. So what, what happens in deliverance? Coming from Genesis chapter 32, when that question is asked of Jacob, what is your name? What do you think deliverance looks like? I get asked this question from time to time because this is only half the process. When, we st when I start meeting with somebody, I want, I want to know three things. If the Holy Spirit reveals them, Sometimes he's very fast, sometimes he's very slow, but, but we're always looking for three things. What is, the, what is the moment of trauma, or were there thousands of them? Just, just something in the home where, where somebody just said, 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 and said, or was there a particular moment that Satan captured and said something about somebody? So I want to know the event if we can find it. That's the root. I want to know what the false identity is. I want to know... What Satan said, it's because you are, and I, and I want to know what the lie is. Now, very often, I can find the lie before I can find the identity, so I can, I can back in to the identity. The Holy Spirit just lets it work backwards sometimes. The Holy Spirit already knows the story of the person sitting across from me. And I'll tell them, there's not, there's not any hope here if we don't expose your story to the Holy Spirit. You think I can do it? Can't do it but I can expose your story to the Holy Spirit because he already knows it. When I start, when, when we discover those three things and we're ready to flip the page and, and really get down to how do we, how, how is someone set free? 
I go back and I talk to them about their salvation experience, about their recognition that they were a sinner. That's an identity. How did they get rid of it? They recognized that there was someone who came to deal with it on their behalf, that they could ask and they could receive the gift of salvation, the rescue that was provided for them. But it, was, but it depended on them recognizing that they were a sinner, that there was a Savior who could change that. And I tell them, did it work? Did that change your life? Did you go from being a sinner to a saint? Did that really work for you? By faith, when you ask God to perform this transaction for you, to, tra- to, to remove and deal with your sin, did it work? And if, I, if, if they say yes, I will step over and I'll ask, do you think it would work again here, now? Not based on being a sinner, but, but, but recognizing that I'm also carrying this identity of I'm, I'm poor. Do you think now that I could go to the Father and say, would you remove that from me? By the power of the Holy Spirit, would you remove that name from me? What is his answer going to be? Yes, every time. I can, I can go to him and say, God, I've known myself all my life as I am weak or I am unwanted or I am unloved, whatever it happens to be. That I, We can actually go to the Father based on the faith that he's the same, the faith that I used that he gave me to, to be saved, I can, that same faith now allows me to ask him, would you take this from me? His answer will be yes. We will have exactly the same moment that Jacob had. So when I'm praying with somebody, I will tell them, I'm, I'll start praying, but at some point when I start praying, you need to ask from your heart, from your words, your request, to say, God, I have known myself as poor. And I'm asking you at this time to take that identity away from me. The prayer's no more confusing than that. I, I, it doesn't require flowery words. It doesn't take a long explanation. We're making a request of a father. No more than I would walk up to him and say, would you take this sticker out of my finger? We make that request in as concise a way that, that this happened between Jacob and God. And we know that when by faith, when we ask, would you take it? I will ask that person at that time, when they, when they, when they pray, would you take it? I will ask them, because this deliverance is a gift. It's not a trick. It's not a magic act. I will ask them, will you receive the freedom that God wants to give you now in the place of that bondage. And upon their yes, their their faith, yes, he'll take it. It's gone. I then pray for them again, thanking God for what he just did and binding the spirit. Because remember, we're not battling flesh and blood. We're battling a spirit here. We're battling something that's been whispering to them all their life. Well, it's your porch is your weak. My responsibility in this, your responsibility in, in this as the minister is to bind that spirit. If it's a spirit of fear, if it's a spirit of doubt, if it's a spirit of destruction, whatever that spirit is that God shows me in that moment that I'm supposed to bind, I bind that spirit and remove it from them. It's not in them. 
It's outside them, and it's a whispering, lying spirit. I don't want to leave it there. I'm not about to leave it there. And when I finish praying that, I ask them this final question. Are you willing to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit? Why would I ask them that? Because if I'm going to remove a spirit from around them, and now I've created a vacancy, what do I need to see happen in that vacancy? It needs to be filled immediately. Even if someone has already received the baptism of the Holy Spirit, but they've still got this going on, if I have a glass that's full of water, but I've got a, I've got a ping pong ball in it that's taking up a space or a rock that's in it, I take that rock out, what's going to happen to that water level? It's going to go down. I need to immerse that cup so that it can come up full again. That is, the, that is the everyday reality of the filling of the Holy Spirit, even for those who have already received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I want to make sure that in the vacancy where that Spirit left, that the Holy Spirit is invited in and fills that space. Now, there is, there is a snapshot of deliverance. If I, if I tried to give it all, that's a, if, you, if you sit through that training before, that's a multi-week week after week uh, training. There's, a, just, there's just a lot of small things, nuances and things that we do that are involved in this. But it's born out of that, of that story with Jacob because God had the power in that moment to say no longer this, you are this. Thanks for listening to this message. For more resources, visit sundownchurch.com.